Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. Uh, you can leave a voicemail at 916-633-1537. The email address is wretchedandratchet at gmail.com. And the Twitter uh, handle is Ratchet Book Club. Um, I want to thank y'all for listening. If this is your first time listening, uh, you should probably be listening to an earlier episode, but I'm not going to judge you for that. You're just going to step into some shit that you may not understand, but sit back and let the waves of the city just roll over you and the beauty of my voice. And Oh, man. Once upon a time, I wanted to be a radio DJ. Like, I wanted to be one of those, not not a um, wacky Rob on the FM dial. No, whack, whack, whack. no none of that. Uh-uh. Fuck that shit. I wanted to be the guy who was um, on late night for jazz radio. Like, um, you know, the jazz stations, when they get to about 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, they start playing The Quiet Storm. Yeah, and I have my name all picked out. Like, everything. I have my name all picked out. I was fully prepared. To just step into the world of uh, FM jazz radio and just take it by storm. A quiet storm. I had the voice, see? My name is... And it wasn't going to be Derek or anything like that because at that point in time we were using um, made-up names for everything. For example, I used to work in a call center. And for a call center, for some reason you're not supposed to give your real name. I don't know why. But they wanted you to use a pseudonym. And so my pseudonym, this sounds a lot worse than it's supposed to be. My pseudonym was Rod Strokeman. (laughs) See, the thing is, at the point in time when I was working there, there was this tremendous point guard that played for, at that time, the Washington Bullets. Yeah, it was the Bullets once, kids. And also, kids, if you're listening to this, like, seriously, what the fuck? But his name was Rod Strickland. And he played for the Portland Trailblazers, and he played for the Washington Bullets, and he was one of my favorite point guards. And so when they were like, you need a name, I was like, I can't be Rod Strickland, but I will be Rod Strokeman. And then I realized Rod Strokeman is a really, really, really great porn name. One of the funniest things that used to happen is when um, people would call in, because you had to, like, you had to do an automated message, kind of like when you pull up to drive-thrus. Just so you know, when you pull up to drive-thrus, you're not talking to a person when they first start talking, so don't talk back. It's automated. Um, You sound dumb. Um, And you don't even know what you really want to order, so don't do that. Just sit there silently for like 20 minutes like you usually do. People behind you be getting mad, but we don't give a fuck. Um, But yeah, it would come on and it would be like, um, because there were six different... 411, I worked at a 411 call center. That was a call center. So there were six different telephone companies we worked for at that point in time. Um, And so whichever one it came up to, uh, you had to say their names. So when somebody would call in from like, for example, Verizon, I... (laughs) I strove to make my name... uh, while making my name. So 
I ended up instead of sounding like myself, I ended up sounding like a a, a surfer because it was like, "Thank you for calling AT and T. This is Rod." And um, guys would get on the phone and they'd be excited, like, "Hey, my name is Rod too." And I'm like, "Good. It's not really my real name, but good. Hey, I'm Rod. I'm Rod. I'm Rod. I'm Rod. Rod, can you tell me what time it is, bitch? It's on your phone." But anyway, yeah, voice, Quiet Storm. Um, the name I wanted to use for the Quiet Storm, and I never would have made it in hindsight. But the name I wanted to use was <clears throat> The Freaky Deaky. Welcome to the Quiet Storm. This is 94.7 KSSJ. It is uh, 9.30 on the clock. This is the Freaky Deaky. And uh, we're going to go ahead and get into some Dave Brubeck. This is uh, Take 5 here on The Quiet Storm. Y'all enjoy. See, stuff like that. But I didn't know that using the name The Freaky Deaky wasn't going to be the best idea until I tried to call somebody. And they were like, use, use your sexy voice. Give me your sexy voice. Because, you know, back in the day when you'd sit on the phone with somebody, they'd be like, you hang up. No, you hang up. They'd be like, give me your sexy voice. And I, I blacked out. <laughs> I blacked out. And uh, this is the freaky deaky. And they were like, what the fuck? <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. Anyways, if you're listening to this and this is not your first episode or if this is your first episode, thank you so much. Leave a review with Podchaser. Um cool thing about Podchaser is you can leave a review for separate episodes or you can leave a review for the show as a whole. Um also you can leave a review on Apple and Stitcher. Whew, I haven't thought about that in a long time. Anyways, uh here's chapter eight of Horson. In the last chapter we found out that Horson was uh gonna have to he was literally forced into uh the role that he had been learning but now he was gonna have to uh take that role on permanently because uh some women had robbed him and jesse his mom of their money for rent and just livelihood so he took fatima and uh told her that she was gonna be uh on the corner for him and uh yeah so that's where they are also He's never going to see Jesse alive again. Jesse died of uh, tuberculosis. Chapter 8. We had been hiding in a flat right off of Hastings Street. After two weeks, the room just started to become smaller and smaller. Big Mama had stopped by on three different occasions. The first time she showed up, there had been nothing but smiles for us. Jesse explained to her about the $500 getting stolen. And since the girls had been wife-in-laws... All of us figured that the money had been taken by both of them. Betty came over twice a week to do our shopping. The only thing Fatima had to do was cook and pester me about making love. When we went to bed, she seemed to have more arms than an octopus. After I pried one hand loose, she always managed to secure a firm hold on the other. One afternoon, while we were going through our wild wrestling match on the living room floor, we were interrupted by someone pounding on the door. Fatima went to the door. I was surprised to see Betty because she had done her shopping the day before. There were tears in her eyes when she stepped in front of me. A sudden apprehension overcame me. Before she spoke, I knew what she had to say would be bad. You better come quick, Horson, because I think Jesse's going to die. Fatima and Betty ran after me as I rushed from the flat. Die? Jesse couldn't die, I thought while making that frantic dash. In my shock, I didn't even notice the cab sitting in front of the house. The girls jumped in the cab and caught me before I reached the corner. When we reached our destination, I leapt out of the vehicle before it came to a halt. I ran up the stairs. Entering the living room, I was vaguely aware of the people milling around. I rushed into the bedroom. Big Mama, tears streaming down her cheeks, stood aside to let me reach the bed. Jessie lay as though she was sleeping, except that the chill fingers of death had given her a tranquility that would never again be disturbed. Falling upon her, with my arms clutching the slim body to me, I remained motionless with my head pressed to my dead mother's bosom. Realizing that I would never see her smile again, hear her laughter, have the joy of just being with her, was unbearable. 
The sobs started deep within me, where they hurt. There was no tears, just long, body-racking sobs that shook my whole being. I can't recall how they pried me loose from the body. I remember that Fatima and Betty kept calling for Big Mama to give them some help, but I can't recall whether she helped them or not. For the next two days, I wandered around our flat in the days. Big Mama took care of the funeral arrangements. Betty, not wanting to return home, moved in with me and Fatima. All three of the women who really cared about my welfare had a difficult time convincing me not to attend the funeral. Big Mama swore up and down that the police were looking for me more than ever now. And if I wanted to join up with Tony, then go on to the funeral. I was still so set on going that Big Mama, as a last resort, hired a man to take me and my two ladies out of town. The same day that they buried Jesse, we were on the highway. I sat in the front seat next to the driver. It was a short trip. An hour and a half after leaving Detroit, we stopped in front of a hotel in Flint, Michigan. The driver began setting our bags on the sidewalk. Fatima went in and got us a room with twin beds. I followed them into the hotel and up to our room as if in a trance. Day turned into night and I still remained in a state of total bewilderment. Fatima undressed me and lay down beside me. I remained motionless even after the sounds of the night people ceased to be heard from the street. Fatima called my name twice softly. Then the springs of the bed sounded as she got up. I could imagine her staring down at me, but I kept my eyes closed. In a moment, I heard the bed that Betty was in squeak. They whispered to each other quietly. I turned my head slightly. My eyes were already accustomed to the dark, so I could see them embracing very clearly. I watched in silence. The bed they were in began to squeal from their contortions. Without being observed, I reached the lamp and pulled the lamp cord. Light flooded the room. Both women were nude, with Fatima on top. They reached hastily for the sheet, but it had slipped and been pushed to the end of the bed. Fatima's eyes grew large with fear as I stood up. I smiled down at the prone women. Don't let me disturb you, ladies, I said and then walked into the toilet. I removed my silk shorts and then stepped into the shower. It was hard for me to accept the fact, but I realized that it wasn't the girls' fault that they didn't feel the same grief that I had to endure. Jessie had been my mother, and mine alone. Then the tears began. I hadn't cried before, but now the tears flowed fiercely. With the door locked and the noise of the shower covering my sounds, I let loose all my pent-up torment. After quite a while, I stepped from the shower and stared in the mirror. I knew that Jesse would have been ashamed of me. Here I was, acting like a baby the first time pressure was put on me. Jesse had always thought she was raising a man. Now I was flipping over to a punk's role. This wouldn't do it all. Her words rang in my mind. First be a man, Horson. Then be a pimp. Shoving the door open, I stepped into the bedroom. I felt that I was already a man, and pimping was my destiny. Leaving my shorts on the floor in the bathroom had been an oversight. Standing between the two beds naked made me regret this absent-mindedness. No man is at his best when he confronts two women in the nude. Fatima had climbed back into her own bed, so this eliminated most of my problem. I stared down at Betty coldly. So you want to fuck, huh, bitch? I sneered. Reaching down, I ripped the sheet from her hands. She had been clutching the sheet up around her neck. And now she put her hands unconsciously over her breast recovering later, staring up at me in terror. I lay down on top of her and grabbed a handful of hair and kissed her ruthlessly. The more she tossed and turned and tried to get away, the more my passion was aroused. When I penetrated her, she screamed. I took her the way a stallion would take a mare. With ruthless strokes, I pushed myself deeper and deeper. She began to moan feverishly. Raising up on my elbows, I started to pile drive my way to the promised land. 
Hearing a wild laugh behind me, I looked over my shoulder and saw Fatima trying to spread Betty's legs wider. Betty started to scream again at the top of her lungs. Fatima let go of her legs and clapped a hand over Betty's mouth. With her other hand, she grabbed a handful of hair. Releasing Betty's mouth, she bent over and hushed her cries of pain with savage kisses. When the pre-dawn light began to show through a window, I rolled over on top of Betty again. Her voice quivered. No, no, not yet, please. Shut up, bitch. Fatima snarled as she rolled over to enjoy herself. You know goddamn well you like it. For an answer, Betty put one arm around Fatima's neck and pulled her down to kiss. With her other arm, she pulled me down towards her bare breasts. Later in the afternoon, I awoke to find both of the girls gone. A chill ran through me. This is a strange new terror, one that stays with any man who lives off the earnings of a woman. His very existence depends on the loyalty of that woman. When his woman goes to a store and stays too long, he begins to worry. If she should stay exceptionally long on a date, fear builds up inside him until he hears her steps upon the stairway. A prostitute will run off from a man she has been staying with for the past 10 years without any warning. She'll leave him at any minute, hour, day or night, taken with her only the clothes on her back. The only thing a pimp can be sure of is that the rent is due, or that his car note needs to be paid. Jumping from the bed, I rushed to the closet with fear pounding in my heart. Their clothes are still here. I slammed the door and leaned against it weakly. Where could they be? I didn't think they would have run off without taking some of their clothes. I reopened the closet and counted the suitcases. There was nothing missing I could see. I sat down on the bed with my head in my hands. Suddenly, I heard steps in the hallway. My heart skipped a beat. Holding my breath, I waited and prayed. The sound of the key being put in the lock put an end to my anxiety. Lying back on the bed, I cursed my stupidity. The first thing I should have checked for was the key. They came into the room laughing and carrying dinner. The aroma from the soul food caused my stomach to ache from so many missed meals. I ate slowly and listened to their constant chatter. They had never seen so many white tricks as they saw up on Industrial Street. This is due to the fact that a car factory was right across the street from all of the bars there. Horson, Fatima said happily. I met a girl who was working the streets and she took us to a trick house where we could turn our tricks for a dollar. She went on excitedly. A dollar each time you use the bedroom ain't too much, Daddy, because the tricks up here don't spend under ten dollars. Betty was just as happy. She pulled out a twenty-dollar bill and held it out to me timidly. While we were at the house horsing, this man come in and he didn't want to see nobody but me, she said cheerfully. Our flat became the trick house. All the girls from downstairs brought their dates up to my flat to take care of their business. Our three bedrooms in my flat stayed in constant use. When the girls from downstairs came up with a carload of white tricks, I'd make myself scarce by taking the back stairway down to New York's house. We did this so that if the police raided, everybody wouldn't go to jail. After I moved upstairs, New York made it a house policy that no white men were allowed downstairs. In fact, he wouldn't even allow his white insurance collector inside his house. His reasons for doing this were logical. If the police had his flat under observation, any white man entering would give them a reason to kick the door down. We had an agreement that if my door got kicked in, he would pay half the fine. I was young, and both of my ladies were just as inexperienced as I. So we didn't realize that New York had everything in his favor with this arrangement, while we had everything to lose. Lady Luck was smiling down on me at this stage in life and I didn't have to pay any dues for my ignorance. With the money rolling in daily, I started taking my two ladies shopping regularly. We would go downtown and spend the whole afternoon going in and out of various stores. Fatima picked out a diamond-studded watch that cost $700 for me. Then she taught me into buying her a mink stole that cost $1,400. Betty, on the other hand, got to bring her present home the same day. With Fatima pushing her, 
She picked out a leather coat for 200 fat ones, and I paid for it out of my pocket. It took a little while to pay off the bill for my watch and Fatima's mink, but she arranged the payments in such a way that we paid off both articles on the same day. When we got home after picking them up, she ran upstairs to change clothes while I went to find New York to show off my watch. Chapter 9 New York listened silently as I raved over the delicate quality of my watch and the exquisite beauty of Fatima's mink. He removed his watch from his arm and put it beside mine. There was no comparison. To match my watch against his was as disastrous as putting a baby kitten against a full-grown dog. His watch had two rolls of diamonds going completely around it, while mine had one. Where the bands connected, there was a cluster of diamonds, whereas on mine, there was none. I had always known that his jewelry was superior to anything I could purchase off the whore money I was getting. But my excitement over buying my first diamond-studded watch had led me to act rashly. And now, complete embarrassment was my reward. All five of his girls were lolling around in the front room watching us. When he compared our jewelry, they giggled. New York caught them with his glance, and the sound froze in the air. But the damage had been done. I felt like jumping in a hole and covering the top up for the duration. There was a knock on the door. Before anyone could open it, Fatima came parading into the room, hands on her hips, and prudently flaunting her mink. She moved with the grace of a lithe, sinewy leopardess. How do I look? She inquired in turn with that leopard-like motion. Instead of looking at me for an answer, she stared directly at New York for her compliment. Her face was lighted up with a rare beauty. It was almost shocking. It demanded that you acknowledge its superiority. New York returned her stare as though in a daze. I think he realized at that moment that Fatima was the most beautiful woman in the house. That ain't nothing good, man. You better get the fuck out that house. I sent something past between them, but I couldn't understand what it could possibly be. Horsenden gave me the night off, New York, she whispered. But he can't get in no bars because he's too young, so I'm stuck for a date. If I hadn't felt foolish before, I did now. I wanted to choke her until she turned blue. I wish I had never purchased that damn mink. I was beginning to learn but my dues hadn't come up yet. If Horson don't mind, New York replied casually, I'll take you out so you can show off your new outfit. I wanted to say no, but the angry looks on the face of New York's ladies caused me to give my agreement. They were staring at Fatima with pure hate. I couldn't understand why they resented Fatima going out with New York. She was my woman, and if I didn't show any resentment over the date, I felt they shouldn't either. Had I known then what I know now, I would have realized they'd just consider me a young fool. Fatima rushed out to take her bath and put on her evening clothes. New York asked me to take a ride with him while he waited on Fatima to dress. I followed him out of the house and waited in the driveway until he backed his caddy out of the garage. I sat back in the car seat and tried to look clever. The motor ran so smooth and silent that I wished for the thousandth time that I was old enough to buy my own car. Horson, New York began, I'm going to run something down to you, man, because I kind of like you. You know about as much about pimping as a monkey knows about flying an airplane. I was stung and hurt by his words, but before I could stutter a reply, he continued, waving me to silence. Just listen, baby, just listen. First of all, your main lady's a bull diker. He didn't ask me. He just made a frank statement, and he went on ruthlessly. Fatima likes pussy just as much as you do. His voice was harsh. That bitch you ought to spend money to freak off. I know this for a fact because she done already turned tricks with three of my girls. I muttered something about killing a whore, but he didn't give me time to finish the sentence. Horson? I ain't telling you this so you'll go home and jump on Fatima. Baby, I'm pulling your coat so you'll never let another bitch tell you how to spend your money. You're wrong, New York. I don't let my women tell. He interrupted me with laughter. His laugh was so hurting that I stopped trying to explain. 
What you mean I'm wrong, baby? Just what the fuck you think you've been doing? He cursed sharply, then lowered his voice. Listen, baby, I'm going to explain it to you just one time, so listen close. Your main lady played on you. Ain't no ifs and buts about it. The bitch played boss game on you. First, the bitch had you spend 1500 for the mink, plus 200 for an alligator purse, then a cool 100 for some matching shoes, and we don't even have to count all the dresses you bought her to cost over $50. He paused to catch his breath before continuing. Add up all the money you spent for your watch, suits, shoes, and then maybe you'll dig just how far ahead that bitch done got on you. There was no need to count. Once New York had mentioned it, I realized how the bitch had played on me. He didn't even know about all the cash money I had given her to send home for the care of her two children. Stopping for a red light, New York lit a cigarette. Dig, baby. It ain't no sense in violence. If you're as cool as I think you is, just give Fatima her propers, baby. She put boss game on you. Can you dig it? I give the bitch her propers, all right, I thought angrily. To pimp, Horson, he said arrogantly. You gotta have style. I don't mean copy it off somebody. Like, for instance, the way you imitate my walk. I've even heard you try and mimic the way I talk. In fact, baby, I've seen you duplicate my hand motions. I blushed like a schoolgirl. His words hurt, mostly because what he was telling me was the truth. I had tried to walk, talk, even act the way I thought he would on certain occasions. But for him to put it out in the open like this really showed me how foolish I had been acting. Ignoring my embarrassment, he continued. Now, I'm not the only one who's noticed this, Horson. My girls remind your ladies of this fact with expressions that have made serious problems flare up. He reached over and turned the radio off. His next words exploded in the silence. In fact, Horson, my whores have made fun of your limitations so much that your bitches are so tired of being mocked about it, and they both gonna choose another man. His words jerked me upright. You better take me home, New York. I replied with more firmness than I felt. I'll try and straighten this out. I hated to make an apology, but I managed to stammer out a few words. The only reason, man, uh, try and dig this. Uh, I've, uh, yeah, uh, idolized you, I admit, and copied your walk. He interrupted. Don't make no excuses, baby, and not to me. I realize you're still a kid, Horson, and for a kid your age, you're doing all right. But you still got a lot to learn. And that's the reason why I'm going to the trouble of pulling your coat, baby, because I don't want to see you blow no more whores like this. I knew what he was saying. And then again, I didn't. I hadn't blown any whores yet, and I didn't plan on losing any. I dig what you're saying, New York. So I'll be able to tighten my game from here. I ain't planning on blowing no whores now, since you done pulled my coat. He smiled at me real friendly, and then pulled my world down on top of me. Horsin', he said quietly. You ain't got no whores, baby. When we left the house, my girls went upstairs to help yours pack. They done chose me, Horsin'. The words have been spoken quietly, but the message came to me loud and clear. I had taken him for a friend, but the friendship had only been respected by me. At that stage of my life, I wouldn't have accepted one of his girls if she had come to me. That was something Tony and I never did, mess with each other's girls. But New York wasn't Tony. I trembled with rage. Not because I had lost my horrors, but because I had let my admiration for New York make me completely forget Tony. I realized with anger that I had forgotten to send Tony any money since my involvement with this so-called friend. New York said something. I had to bring my thoughts back from the spread and fog to understand what he was saying. Dig, baby. I ain't gonna let you down up tight, Horson. I'm gonna give you the money both girls make for the next two days, baby. That way, you can get yourself together, baby, because I really dig you. I laughed sharply. If them whores done chose you, mister, the only thing you can do for me is have some bitch call me a cab so I can get the fuck out of your house. New York got mad. You ain't got to take that attitude, baby. After all, the game is cop and blow. I was quivering. 
I had to fight down the urge to kill him. One day, New York, I'll see you. And instead of looking up at you, I'll be looking down. You was blowing the bitches, he yelled angrily. If someone's going to cop him, that might as well have been me. You might as well learn now than later, Horson. When it comes to horrors, you don't trust your brother. Anyways, you ain't ready for no bitch like Fatima. Me? Now I know how to handle her. What you should have did, Horson, was send her to a whorehouse. So that when she freaked off with another bitch, she'd have a chance of pulling a new whore for you. He shrugged his shoulders to emphasize how simple it was. What you did wrong, he added, was to let Fatima tighten Betty. Now instead of losing one whore, you blow two. He pulled the Cadillac into his driveway and stopped. All the lights were out in my flat. Horson, he said quietly, you ain't got to take no cab. I'll drive you wherever you want to go. This was too much. I stepped out of the car, but at the sound of his voice, I stuck my head in. Motherfucker, I screamed to him. I don't want you to do nothing but stay the fuck away from me. My understanding is completely zero, so you and them bitches ain't got nothing to say that I want to hear. Do you understand, bitch-ass motherfucker? New York didn't answer. He just stared at me and shook his head in agreement, and I realized that he was frightened. The fear in his eyes smoothed my anger. Some of his girls had heard us pull up in the driveway, and now they were standing on the porch. I knew they had heard everything I said to him, so before I closed the car door, I tried to humiliate him. If I ever see you anywhere, punk, downtown, on the track, in the streets, and you look at me too long, sucker, I'm getting knee-deep in your ass. Then I added for emphasis, if you keep frowning, sucker, like you don't like what I'm saying, I'll get in your ass now. He kept staring straight ahead, not looking in my direction, his hands frozen to the steering wheel. I could sense the struggle he was having with himself. Even a fool could comprehend certain facts at certain times, and I began to grasp the reason for New York to ignore my insults. It wasn't that he was so afraid of me, he didn't want any trouble. He had caught my girls, so why fight? Later in life, I would meet up with Betty in Detroit, and she would remind me of this night and tell me that New York had a pistol, but he really liked me too much, so he didn't shoot me. He slowly regained his composure and smiled coldly. We'll meet again, Horson. Maybe by then you'll have learned something about pimping. I slammed his car door shut. His girls watched me climb the stairs. There were contemptuous glances shot in my direction, but I stared at them so scornfully that they dropped their eyes. There was a burning passion in me to kick New York's door in and drag both my whores out and kick them in the ass so their noses bled. The only thing that kept me from going on the wild was my earlier teaching. Jesse had always taught me that I was better than five whores. If a bitch ever left me, it wasn't my loss. It was hers. Her words rang in my mind. You don't need no bitch. The whores need you. Don't fight a woman just because she wants to leave you. Help her pack. Give her cab fare. Then go out yourself and have big fun. Don't let a bitch live and get the idea that she's hurting you by leaving. If anything, make her believe she's doing you a favor. Tell the bitch since she's leaving, that's one less worry you'll have. With these thoughts in my head, I straightened my back and went on up the stairs. My bags were sitting in the front room, packed. I smiled. They had really crossed me out the picture. I sat down on top of a suitcase and pondered my problem. I still couldn't shake the feeling of shame. The sound of a horn blowing in front of the house woke me from my stupor. I walked to the window and looked out. A taxi was parking in front of the house. Raising the window, I yelled down for him to wait. I picked up my bags and went down the stairs. I knew that I had blown my first horrors, and I also knew that they wouldn't be my last. That's real talk. I mean, there's been times that I have respected somebody so much or wanted a friendship so much that I lost sight of everything else including the fact that the friendship wasn't mutual. But it seems like New York's friendship for him was mutual. It was a fondness, and it was a fondness that was also tempered with a tutorial. Sometimes your friends aren't your friends. Sometimes your friends are your teachers. You can be friends with your teachers as long as you respect the lessons they teach. And the lesson that Horson got taught right there was a very important lesson, like extremely important. 
And it was one that would probably make him be better in the long run. But because he was a friend, or he thought he was a friend, he lost sight of his real friend, Tony. So I hope he's able to get back in connection with him. He said that it would be a few years before he got back with him, though. So I know it's going to happen eventually. Chapter 10. The mattress in the small, dingy hotel room was lumpy, and I shifted positions to keep a button from pinching my back. It didn't do too much good, though, so I just tried to forget my surroundings. My eyes followed the progress of a roach as he crawled across the ceiling. He finally darted into one of the hundreds of cracks in the wall. The small light that hung from the ceiling cast shadows against the wall. To amuse myself, I began to make silhouettes. Holding my fingers up, I'd make a donkey head. Quickly growing tired of this, I began to pace up and down. The three days I had been cooped up in the room were beginning to tear on my nerves. The radio in the next room went on. That would be the pregnant woman next door getting up. Without even trying to listen, I could hear the water running in her face bowl. Soon the sound of her brushing her teeth came through a thin wall. I knew her next movement before she performed it. She would open the door and go down the hallway to the toilet. And then spend the rest of the morning there doing God knows what. I stood by my door and waited. Soon as I heard her come out, I opened mine. I stared at her as she paddled down the hallway towards me wide-legged. She smiled as she passed. Again, I was shaken by the sight of her. She wasn't beautiful. Not the way most men would judge beauty. To me, she seemed like an untamed queen. She was tall. Taller than me. I had always been drawn to dark women, and she was by far the most attractive black woman I had ever seen. She was jet black, and her skin seemed to be just as soft as velvet. I watched her wide as she waddled down the hallway. It was extra large, but in her condition, that was expected. Oh well, I cautioned myself. You can look, but don't get involved. I had enough problems without getting the responsibility for some pregnant bitch didn't nobody else want. I stopped at the desk and paid my rent. It was $10 a week, or $2 a day. I had no desire to stay there permanently, so I paid mine daily. I called a cab outside the hotel and went downtown. I found a drugstore and went into the money order counter. I counted my bankroll. $52 was the family jewels. For a moment I hesitated, then went on and had a $25 money order made out to Tony. Next, I found the food counter and ordered breakfast. While waiting for it, I wrote a short note to Tony, then mailed it. After that, I got down to serious business. I spent the whole morning and most of the afternoon running in and out of stores, shortchanging the salesgirls. After that, I hit a men's store and played for two suits that came off a clothing rack where the prices started at 100 or better. With both suits tucked under my armpits in a booster fold, I scanned the moving traffic until I saw an empty cab. After waving it down, I had to outrun two women shoppers to the cab door. I slammed the door in their faces and grinned at the driver. He smiled in return as I gave him the directions, then pulled down to the moving traffic. Stopping a block away from my destination, I paid my fare and started walking. My purpose for walking paid off quicker than I hoped. Towards the middle of the block, I entered a barber shop and sold both suits. When I came back out on the street, I felt pretty good with myself. I had made over $200 hustling that day. The Ding Dong restaurant was partially empty when I entered. It was a large, greasy spoon slop house. In the middle of the floor was a horseshoe counter with two waitresses on the inside of it, each working a different side. I sat down in the curve of the counter so I could watch the pinball machines lined up against the wall. The sound of laughter caused me to whirl around on my stool. Four sporting girls, still in their teens, entered with two young pimps that I had seen around. One of the men nodded towards me, while the other ignored me and went to the jukebox. As soon as the music began, two of the girls started dancing. George, the fat white proprietor of the restaurant, came out from the back and stood at the counter watching the buttocks of the dancers. From the gleam in his eyes, I knew that the sign on the wall, no dancing, meant nothing. When my food came, I just picked over it. The short, thin, light negro who had gone to the jukebox took a seat near me and began speaking to the girls. I got the pimp or die, he yelled in a shrill voice. If a whore don't give me no money, I'd starve to death. 
I don't know how to do nothing but pimp. Pimp or die, he continued to babble. Some people think the game is cop and blow, but it ain't. It's cop, lock, and block. Cop and hold. The girl shot me a startled glance. His remarks were directed at me. Everybody in this town seemed to know that I lost my ladies. That's why, he continued, it's pure delight for a bitch to choose me. I'm the sweetest thing this side of heaven. Why, a bitch would have to be crazy to leave me. Ain't that right, baby? He turned to the girl sitting next to him for agreement. Her head bobbed up and down stupidly. If he had stated he could fly, she would have given the same answer. The jukebox went silent. George came from behind the counter and put in some more money. He motioned to one of the girls dancing, and she ran over to push some buttons. George slipped his arm around her waist and got a few free fills. She squealed with laughter, punched the last record quickly, and expertly slipped out of his grasp. Loudmouth jumped up with a yell. Everything I do, I do good, he shouted and pulled the nearest girl from her stool and started dancing. After watching him a few minutes, I knew I could make him wish he had never learned to dance. From close observation, I knew the smaller of the two girls dancing was the better dancer. Without hesitating, I grabbed her arm and pulled her towards the middle of the floor. I gave her a spin before she was ready and caught her hand when she came around. I dipped and started doing the new bop. She smiled up at me. All women love to dance with a man who knows what he's doing, and she quickly realized I was exceptional. We danced as though we had been doing this together all our lives. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see the other couple. Loudmouth was doing the split and whatever else came into his mind. He tried to outdo me, but it was useless. The harder he tried, the sillier he looked. The record ended and I went back to my seat, with Tiny following me. You sure are mellow, baby, she said, sitting down on the stool next to me. Her compliment was sweet to my ears. I turned around on my seat and stared at her. She was smaller than I thought. With shoes on, she still wouldn't stand over five feet. That was the only way you could see her small, in height. Her legs and hips were extremely large for a woman her size, while her breasts would stand up to measurement in any company. You like what you see? She asked softly. I smiled and continued my meticulous examination. Her hair had been processed and she wore a flat comb to the front. It gave her the look of being fast and slick. She was golden brown and her skin didn't have a blemish. There was a look about her eyes that seemed older than her body. She had the eyes of a woman who had been hardened by life, yet she couldn't have been older than 18. Everybody calls me Little Bit, she informed me. So now, Horson, we know each other, don't we? Her laughter was harsh but pleasant at the same time. I remained silent and smiled at her knowingly. I knew she would use my name for the sole purpose of getting me to ask her how she found it out. I listened to her simple chatter. After a while, I came to the conclusion that Little Bit wasn't too bright. She talked constantly, in an unceasing flow, about various people in show business. It would have been impossible for her to have known all the entertainers she spoke of. After we had danced a few more times, Little Bit chose. I had copped a whore by the simple fact of being a good dancer, not because I had run some heavy game down to her or impressed her with how clever I was. She talked so fast I hadn't been able to get my few words in. We left the restaurant and headed for my place. I was still trying to pin from between my legs. Little Bit laid up with me till close to midnight before she got up and started to dress. She dressed slowly and ran her mouth constantly. Had my own racehorse on the track meant a lot to me, but her persistent gibbering had destroyed the satisfaction I felt about copping another mud kicker. Normally I would have gone up on the track with her. The main reason for doing this would have been to protect her from the man she had left, but Little Bit claimed she hadn't had no pimp. Common sense should have warned me. Most of the time when you find a prostitute who doesn't have a man someplace, something is wrong somewhere. Being at that stage of life where impressed people meant so much, I lay back on the bed and imagined what the whores would be saying about my quick cop. When she returned at about 6 in the morning, she shook my shoulder and started chattering. I rolled over and mumbled for her to put my trap money on the dresser. Then I quickly covered my head up with a pillow and pretended to sleep. 
I lay there silently and listened to all the sounds of morning life. Cars starting up to take men and women to factories and shops. Finally, Little Bit settled down, and soon the sound of her gentle snoring came regular to my ears. I drifted off again and slept until the door next door opened, reawaking me. After lighting a cigarette, I got up and walked over to the dresser to find my trap money. If I hadn't been fully awake at first, I was now. I recounted the six crumpled one dollar bills. In two giant steps, I was at the bed jerking the covers back. I shook a little bit until her eyes opened wide with fear. Holding the money under her nose, I slammed her back against the bed. Wait, Daddy, she managed to say. I didn't break luck till early this morning. You know you kept me in the bed till late, and when I got up on the corner, there wasn't any tricks riding. Releasing my grip on her nightgown, I stepped back from her bed. She was awake now and talking a mile a minute. The floodgate was open, and I really didn't know how to stop it unless I put my fist in it. Since this was Friday, it would be a good night in the streets for a whore, so I didn't want to jump on her. It was the only thing that prevented a little bit from getting a good ass kicking that morning. She was talking so fast I couldn't get a word in. Stepping up to the bed, I grabbed a pillow and covered her face with it. Not to scare her, but just so I can get a word in. Bitch, I yelled angrily. I'd rather toss bricks at the penitentiary than allow a whore of mine to bring me short money. She was kicking so hard I took the pillow off from around her head. I didn't want to smother her. Had she realized that I lived by this code, she could have avoided a lot of future grief. All she had to do was gather her few belongings and leave. Even though I was still immature and too unseasoned to be a good pimp, I'd set certain standards and any whore that chose me would have to live up to them. Soon as she caught her breath and figured I wouldn't kill her, she opened the floodgates again. I turned my back on her and slammed the door on my way out. I stormed down the hallway in a rage. My pregnant neighbor was coming into the hotel when I crossed the lobby. She smiled brightly at me but I frowned down so tough that her friendly greeting froze on her face. I went downtown and started playing con with a deadly intent. I short conned my way down one side of the street and back up the other side. After playing one supermarket cashier out of a 10 spot, I doubled back and got into another line and played another cashier out of another bill. We were having an Indian summer, and the day was too hot for good boosting without a shot box, so I just kept on playing stuff. Traffic was backed up on the streets with workers changing shifts when I started back towards the track. The bars were full of workers cashing their checks. I cursed my youth with a passion. Had I been of age, I could have mingled in the barroom with those veteran prostitutes, and in my daydreams, I imagined myself the master of 50 hard-working whores. I strolled on down towards the pool room. That was one place I could get into without too much trouble. I could easily stand to lose $20 or more to improve my game. After all, I had close to $300 in my pocket. It was just dark when I emerged from the pool room. My bankroll was $15 shorter than it had been, but I counted that as cheap fees for learning how to play nine ball good. On the back table in the pool room, a crap game was in the process of starting. I knew that it would start off with small bets, but as the night advanced, it would gradually accelerate until most of the players were wagering the don't-go money. I stopped and peeped through a ding-dong window on my way home and spotted my paltry whore. She was in the middle of the restaurant floor doing a bumping grind. Two prostitutes leaning on the front of the building watched me closely. I spoke to them and continued on down the street. Back at the hotel, I pulled my suitcase out and rumbled around till I found my bag of tea. Removing three pairs of green, white, and red dice from the bag, I tossed them on the bed while I put the suitcase back up. Returned to the crooked dice, I made a few practice knocks with the bust-outs. I practiced switching the dice until my movement was so graceful I felt as if I could swindle the game without fear of being detected. I carried all three sets of dice with me, in case the housemaster changed the color of the dice in the game. My nerves were tingling at the prospect of winning. I walked down the hallway with a light gait. Horson, Horson, wait a minute. You going up on the corner? I turned to see my neighbor waddling down the hall towards me. Her belly was protruding in front of her so far that she seemed deformed. She was grinning to me as if I was the expecting father. There was something about her that I liked, so I returned her smile. 
Actually, I wasn't in any rush. I wanted the game to be going full blast whenever I got back to it. Yeah, baby, I'm going up on the set. I took her arm and helped her down the stairs. Big as your stomach is, honey, I'm kind of curious about what you're going to have. A bull or an elephant? She laughed and leaned on me. It was a gay sound, and I liked the huskiness in her voice. I'm a big girl, Horson. Look at me. Can't you tell? Everything about me is big. I tossed my hands in the air in mock alarm. You mean to tell me everything's large, honey? That deep, beautiful sound of gaiety escaped from her again. Yes, baby, she replied, smiling. Even that's getting large. But that's one problem I'll correct as soon as I drop this load. Without seeming to do it, I examined her closely. With the heels she wore, I was a couple inches under her. She inquired casually. Now she smoked me over at short range with those bewitching eyes of yours. Would you care to know my name? That is, if I passed your inspection. Actually, I was ashamed of living next door to her and not having taken the time to ask her name. She sensed my embarrassment. Putting her arm around my shoulder, she drew me closer. Marie Wilson. That's my whore name. And my real name, too. Even though don't nobody call me that. They all call me Boots. Don't feel bad now, she admonished me. I didn't know your name until your girl came to my room this afternoon and talked me to death. The night had grown chilly, so I slipped my arm around her waist as we walked. Boots waved to a couple girls working out of a doorway, then snuggled closer in my arms as we walked up to the pool room. She looked at me sadly. I had heard about you, Horson, before I even knew who you was, and I think I know just what you need. My only regret is that I didn't meet you before I got pregnant. She walked off and left me staring after her in surprise. Before going into the pool room, I walked to the restaurant and peeked through the window. It wasn't too much of a shock for me to see my whore in her favorite spot. With a boy about my age, she was dancing in the middle of the floor. It wasn't hard for me to figure out why my trap money was shitty. I slowly walked back to the pool room. If the crap game went off the way I anticipated, I had one hell of a surprise in store for her. 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Leave a review on Podchaser uh, or Apple or Stitcher. With Podchaser though, you can leave reviews for separate episodes um, or for the show as a whole if you wish. You can also join our Patreon at patreon.com backslash single simulcast. And if you just want to buy me a coffee or really buy me a book because niggas don't, I I don't, I don't fucking drink coffee. I don't like that shit. Um, You can buy me a book at buymeacoffee.com backslash sscast. Thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. I'll holler at y'all next time. Be good. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.